You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Good morning. Uh, True confession time. Last night I started to watch um, the extended version of Lord of the Rings. Okay, now that's not why we're, that's not why I'm up here, but, you know, that's such a wonderful, epic story with a fantastic soundtrack that all night going through my mind, besides what I'm going to talk about this morning, is the music from, from Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings. I'm Doug, for those who don't know me. I think most people in here know who I am. And, and I'm a, a deacon here, and specifically, I'm a deacon of the prayer ministry. And so it wasn't surprising to me five or six weeks ago that I was approached by the elders and say, oh, by the way, we're doing a series of sermons on kingdom-centered prayer. How about, how about you take the last one, Okay. And so I said, sure, that sounds really good. And so our first one, Royce preached, and he was talking about, and it was from the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer. And he reminded us that kingdom-centered prayer is talking to God about what's important to him. Seeking God boldly and persistently and trusting in God's enabling power through and presence of the Holy Spirit. Chris followed up and and reminded us, you know, Jesus, when he was getting ready to leave, told his disciples, I'm going away, and oh, by the way, you can expect to do greater things than you have seen me do because I've been limited by space. And so Chris reminded us we should be praying for those greater things as part of kingdom-centered prayer. Josh, <clears throat> Josh then spoke and reminded us, you know, when the, act, when the disciples were told in Acts, how about you keep your mouth shut about, oh, these are my words, okay, this, isn't, <laughs> this is highly paraphrased. Why don't you keep your mouth shut about this Jesus? And so they went back and they prayed boldly and confidently to the God who is the king. He reminded us we should be specific when we pray these bold and confident prayers. And oh, by the way, let's do it corporately and let's prevail at it. Let's not make it a one-time thing. Last week, Chris reminded us, you know, we're in a a spiritual warfare. You need to be praying all the time as you put on God's armor so that you can stand firm in the gospel. Today, I want to, from our passage, I'm going to sit back and say one of the last things we'll talk about in kingdom-centered prayer is Our prayers need to be inclusive, not exclusive. Inclusive, not exclusive. Let's pray.
Father, we have so often forgotten that your gospel is inclusive to all people. So, Father, often our prayers haven't been inclusive. They've been exclusive. I pray, Father, that as we go through this passage this morning, that you'll open the eyes to the truth of these words and that we can apply them to our lives. Amen. I'm going to give you a little background on some text because our text is going to come out of 1 Timothy. In the book of Acts, we find that Paul did many missionary journeys. Timothy joined him on several of those. And one of his missionary journeys was to Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. It's on the coast. And um, at the time that Paul visited, it was one of the largest cities in that region. Estimates have been it was anywhere from 50,000 to a quarter of a million. It encompassed an area about, and influenced an area of about 30 miles around its perimeter. Let's put that in perspective. In 30 miles, you've gone up the river somewhere around Multnomah Falls. If you go to the west 30 miles, we're out of between Hillsboro and Seaside. If you go south, you're south of Wilsonville. If you go north, you're north of Woodland. That's the area that the people that were influenced by Paul's preaching at Ephesus lived in. Ephesus was known for several things. It was was a center of worship. Pick a god, the god of Artemis. How about Caesar? There was a temple to Caesar. There was a temple to Roma. As Chris mentioned last week, there were probably 50 deities. And in this area, then, Paul arrives and preaches. And so, we tend to think of when he's writing to Timothy or when he's writing his book, his letter to the Ephesians, we tend to think of a small church. It likely wasn't. In fact, the church was large enough and their influence was great enough that it affected the silversmithing industry in that city. People stopped buying idols to all these various gods. The church had had that much influence on them. In fact, the silversmiths, if we read in Acts 19, the silversmiths were so upset about this that they created a civil disturbance. That disturbance was so impactful that the church basically was shut down. They couldn't go and they couldn't preach. They couldn't go to the to the public areas and preach. It was impacting the proclamation of the gospel. Okay? The civil servants stepped in and they stopped it. Okay? And the gospel was able to proclaim. Sometime after that, Paul left. Sometime after that, he wrote the, 
the letter to the Ephesians, reminding them, stand firm, stand firm in the gospel, stand firm in the fact that Jesus is the one who paid our ransom. Jesus is the one who by faith we believe in. Stand firm in that. Guess what? Sometime after that, probably within five years, no more than ten, the church at Ephesus had been fragmented. They had elders who were sitting back and preaching a false doctrine. Okay? They had become elitist in their attitudes. The gospel was only for a few. Their prayers likely reflected that. Paul commissions Timothy, I want you to go and I want you to correct some false teachings. I want you to deal with those people who are preaching a wrong gospel. I want you to address this elitism that they have because the gospel is for all. Okay? Paul couldn't join Timothy, so he writes a letter. We know it as the first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy. And we're going to read that together. I'd like you to stand. Okay. And here's what he says to Timothy. He says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place men should be praying, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. You may be seated. From this text, we learn a couple of things about kingdom-centered prayer. We reviewed earlier about several of the topics we had been covering already. We learn from this passage in Timothy that kingdom-centered prayers are inclusive, not exclusive, in that we are to pray for all people. So Timothy was given an assignment, correct some things. As I mentioned, Paul couldn't go there with him. Timothy, I think, though, if we would look at the first chapter, which we did not read, Timothy was probably feeling overwhelmed. As I mentioned, the church was large. It had multiple elders. So he's probably feeling overwhelmed with the prospect and the magnitude of what Paul had commissioned him to do. He was also likely reluctant, not even knowing, where do I start? 
Where do I start? Paul's answer to Timothy, Timothy, pray. Now, he's not, this is not a suggestion. Paul's not saying, hey, Timothy, if you think about it, why don't you pray? Paul says, he, the word says he urged Timothy to pray. He exhorted Timothy to pray. In other words, Timothy, whatever else you think you need to do at Ephesus, the first thing you need to do is pray. And you need to pray for all people. So all people is one part that makes kingdom-centered prayer inclusive. We pray for all people. Oh, Timothy, don't get hung up on how to pray or which prayers to pray. Paul lists them. He says, petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving. Don't get hung up. Just pray. When I think of petitions, I think of praying for myself. And I think Paul's reminding Timothy the same thing. Timothy, as you go into this, you need to pray for yourself. You need to pray continuously as you put on the armor of God that you can stand bold in the face of opposition to the true gospel. Paul's saying, oh, by the way, you need to pray intercession prayers. Intercession prayers, I tend to look at as praying for other people. These people that are divisive, these people who have the truth wrong, those who have yet to hear the gospel, pray intercession prayers for them. And Timothy, be thankful in your prayers. Thankful for what God has done. Thankful for what God will do. I want you to anticipate God will do big and bold and wonderful things for you and through you. I want you to thank God for that. And then, Timothy, let's knock off the elitism. We tend to pray elite prayers if we think God is only for us. So, Timothy, pray for all people. I retired in January, and before that, I worked for a company, and I was in IT. So I have a thing about the word all, okay? Because I would go to the business group and I would say to them, tell me your requirements. Well, we need this all the time. Well, further questioning would likely reveal, no, I really don't mean all the time. I just mean 99% of the time or 75% of the time. So I have learned to sit back and look at that word all and say, I want to qualify this, okay? I want to qualify it. I want to quantify it. Because Paul says, okay, I want you to pray for all people. So as I think about this word all, I don't think all in this case means Timothy I want you to pray for every individual by name. Okay? Because it would have taken him too long. And besides that, since this applies to us today, how many lifetimes would it take us to pray for 7 to 8 billion people? So I don't think Paul is saying pray individually. 
don't pray for each individual person. I do think, because we know that, <clears throat> that the church at Ephesus was being elitist, I do think <clears throat> that what Paul was talking about <clears throat> was don't rule anybody out. Pray for all people. Don't rule any group out. <clears throat> Don't rule them out because of their race. Don't rule them out because of their culture. Don't rule them out because of their demographic or economic status or political status or their doctrinal point of view. Don't rule them out. Pray for everyone. Don't keep anything from praying for someone that God brings to your mind. <clears throat> Paul specifically brings out a group of people that Timothy is to pray for, and I think it applies to us. Don't rule anybody out because they're in a position of leadership. Timothy, I want you to pray for kings. I want you to pray for those in authority. I want you to pray for the kings and those in their high places that we may lead a peaceful, godly life, dignified in every way. That's what verse 2 says. On the surface, that sounds like, you know what? I should be praying for my own comfort and safety. Right? Quiet, peaceful, dignified life. That's not what Paul's talking about here. And I say that because Paul was persecuted. Jesus said his disciples, he told his disciples, you will be persecuted before me. So I don't think that's the case, that, that we're to pray necessarily for safety and comfort. I think Paul was hearkening back to the riot that occurred at, I mentioned, in Ephesus that I mentioned a few, a few minutes ago. That riot had impacted the gospel going forth. It had impacted people from preaching. And I think Paul's reminding him, remember that? The civil authorities put that riot down so we could peacefully and dignified manner Proclaim the gospel. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. Pray that, our, pray that our leaders will create that environment where we can, with dignity, we can proclaim the gospel and live out our lives. <clears throat> so what about us? When we are faced with an overwhelming task, what is our first course of action? I tend to tackle it on my own, right? So is prayer our first response? Is that our last response? Is it somewhere in between? So that's one question that we can ask ourselves about whether our prayers are inclusive or exclusive. The other questions are, when we do pray, do our prayers tend to be for just me? How much time do I spend on praying for me versus praying for others? And when we do pray, do we limit those prayers for those, when we do pray for others, do we limit our prayers to those that 
we feel comfortable with in our own race, in our own demographic. Those people at Red Sea. When we pray and meet in our when we meet and pray in our home communities, are our prayers more toward drawing to Christ and developing community, which is part of our pathways? How much of our time do we spend praying in the area of deploying to culture? Praying for other people who need to know Jesus. <clears throat> oh, how much time do we spend thanks in prayer of thanksgiving? Or how much time do we spend praying for our leaders that they will create an environment where the gospel can be proclaimed? Do we spend more time lamenting our current state versus praying for our current state? Why is it important that we pray corporately and individually for all people? There are a couple reasons I can think of. The first reason is that it lines up with praying for the things that are important to God. The gospel is for all people. So we should pray those things that are important to God. Number two, it's good. If we look at verse three, actually it's verse two. When we look at verse two, it says specifically, praying for all people is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God. So we should pray. I'm not trying to put guilt on us. I'm just realizing that most of us probably focus, by habit, focus our prayers to be more inclusive versus exclusive. So let's be intentional about starting to pray exclusively. Praying for all people. Praying for our leaders. Praying that people will come to know Jesus. The second point in our text that shows that prayers are to be inclusive and not exclusive as a Paul's reminding Timothy, they need to be evangelistic in focus. God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So that we read that this morning. That was verses 4 through 6. Okay. Paul, so Paul's reminding Timothy to pray for all people. He's reminding them to make those prayers evangelistic. I'll word it a different way. In the words of Jesus, it was, pray, God, your kingdom come. Now, I'm not saying that we should never pray for people's 
physical, emotional, relational, or financial needs. Because Peter reminds the church, I want you to cast every care that you have upon God because he cares for you. I want you to pray about those. Okay? But I think we see that because if we look at the Bible, Paul's big concern was, I want the kingdom of God advanced. I want God's kingdom to come. Because he knows that having a relationship with God was something he planned from the very beginning. And that relationship with God wasn't to be inclusive, exclusive to one group of people. <clears throat> it wasn't exclusive and only for, it wasn't only for the Jews. Although God chose to work through Abraham, use his family, when he promised Abraham that his family would be vast as the stars, he also said, oh, by the way, through your family, through someone in your line, the whole world is going to be blessed. That someone, as we read scripture, is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the group at Ephesians, the group at Ephesus, had forgotten that. They had reverted back to making it exclusive for the elite, for those in the know, for those who had the right genealogy. They were caught up in that. They were caught up in it to the point that Paul tells Timothy in verse 8, I want the men to lift holy hands in prayer instead of fighting and arguing over all these things, the genealogies, the mythologies, I want them instead to focus on praying for all people. <clears throat> so we're to pray for all people. We're to pray that they are to as in verses 5 and 6 say, that they will come to the knowledge of the truth. As I mentioned, the Ephesians had forgotten the true gospel. So Paul reminds them. He reminds them in a couple of simple verses in, in this book. There's one God. I know your culture says, church at Ephesians, that there are multiple deities. Okay. But Paul's reminding them of something that they'd forgotten or they no longer believed. There is one God. Okay. Now, <clears throat> That was their issue. They, were, they had multiple gods, and Paul's reminding them that there's only one God. Our culture's a little different. Our, the issue in our culture is we don't believe in multiple gods. The issue of our culture is it's pluralistic. In other words, there's no absolute truths. Oh, by the way, you're ignorant 
If you believe in absolute truth, you must be tolerant. Our culture also holds that there's a value in the separation and the split between the private and the public. There's no place in our culture to have dialogue in a public place, dialogue involving God. If we look around, it seems like the evangelical church, I fall in that area, you fall in that area, particularly the evangelical church that lives outside the Bible Belt, think Portland, Oregon, Pacific Northwest, okay? We've somewhat bought into this idea. We tend to be hesitant to talk about God in public. I worked for 28 years under the unspoken and sometimes spoken rule that you can't be divisive in the workplace. That means discussions about politics, but particularly religion, are out of bounds. They're taboo. I wish I could say that I ignored that. Unfortunately, I didn't. The other aspect of the the gospel is there's one mediator between that one God and that mediator is his son, the man, Jesus Christ. What's a mediator do? You know, I I looked it up. A (laughs) mediator, it's kind of redundant. A mediator is someone who mitigates. Whoa, okay. Someone who, who... Mediates between two parties with the goal of bringing between peace those two parties. I think it's something that maybe Dave and his, and his company do at times. They're a mediator between people that disputes, relationships that are broken. So why do we need this mediator? What made the broken relationship? There's a huge riff if we read the Bible. There's a huge riff between God and man due to sin. Sin is our propensity. This is my definition, and I think it's valid. Sin is our propensity to live life based upon my definition of good and evil not God's. And I get that because of uh, Genesis 3. So the, the idea that it's new, this phenomenon of defining my own good and evil is new, that's something new to our culture, right? What's truth for you is okay for you, but it may not be true for me. We'd like to think that's new. It's not. We read Genesis 3. 
very beginning of God's story is Adam and Eve chose to eat from the true of the knowledge of good and evil. And people since then have been living life under that definition. My definition. I want to choose what's, what's, what I want to call good and what I want to call evil. That creates a huge riff. Because most of the time when we define our own good and evil, it is not what God wants. It's not what God considers good. It's not what God considers holy. In fact, Paul reminds the church at Rome, everyone does this. All people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this rift means there's no peace. Man and God are at odds. You know what? That rift bothers God. It bothered God to the point to say, I am going to make it right. I'm going to make peace between me and mankind. So Jesus came and he negotiated that peace. He negotiated peace between us and God because of his great love for God and his great love for us. Jesus became that peace. He became that peace by willing to take our punishment, the punishment mankind deserves, upon himself and die on the cross. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He had a role to do. That role is he needed to mediate. And so that's what he ascended. He rose to show that he had victory over death. And he now sits with God and mediates on our behalf. <clears throat> In our culture... We may say, okay, I believe in God. But there can't be just one way to him. There can't. Paul's reminding the Ephesians and reminding us, oh yeah, there is. There is only one way. <clears throat> so what are we to do? It sounds, it sounds kind of overwhelming when we think about it. What are we to do? Well, unfortunately, our first inclination is to push back. I want to see discussions about God return. I want to see prayer in school. I want to legislate that. I can remember, and I know John and Donna can, a few others can, they tend to be baby boomers, by the way. We can remember when you could pray in school. We can remember when you could talk about God in school. In fact, I sang in a school choir, and we sang Christmas carols for crying out loud. We want to see that come, and we want to try to legislate that, or we want to try to debate it. But guess what? Legislation and debate isn't going to change people's hearts. 
That's why Paul wrote to Timothy, but you need to pray first. It's God who changes the hearts. Peter reminds, well, actually, Jesus reminds us that revealing who he is and who God is is something that God does. When Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus reminds him and tells him, hey, guess what? You didn't figure that out on yourself, all by yourself. God revealed that to you. So we need to be praying. Okay? So our first course of action isn't to push back. Our first course of action is to pray. Pray, God, your kingdom come. Pray that the Holy Spirit will illuminate all people's minds to something that is contrary to their culture. For the Ephesians, it was, oh, by the way, there's not 50 gods, there's one God. In our culture, oh, by the way, there is one absolute truth. There is one God, there is one absolute truth. Holy Spirit, you have to illuminate their eyes for that. You have to open their minds to that. That there is one one God, and there is only one mediator, one way between God and man. So we need to be praying. We need to be praying, like Paul reminded Timothy, we need to be praying for the leaders. Our leaders. Allow us to have a culture. Allow us to have an environment, is a better word, that allows us to be able to live quiet, dignified lives and proclaim the gospel. Don't allow the environment to become so harsh that we have to hide that we can't go about proclaiming the gospel. We need to make those prayers big and confident because it sounds like, sounds like impossible, okay? But it's not. We just need to pray that God will work. We need to pray for us. We need to pray boldly and confidently for us. That we will stand firm in a culture that says there is no absolute truth. We will stand firm in the gospel. One God, one mediator between God and man. And that's what I'd like to do right now. I'm going to lead us in prayer. I want you to pray with me. And we're going to focus on on some of these things we talked about. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our prayer lives tend to be more exclusive than they are inclusive. We tend to focus more on our needs and not the needs of others. We tend to focus on on our comfort or we tend to focus on Uh, just praying for Red Sea. Father, forgive us for that. Forgive us and allow us, God, to become more, more inclusive in our prayers. Father, I thank you that, that your word says if we confess 
our sins. You're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So, Father, I thank you for, for forgiving us, for being exclusive in our prayers. Father, this morning, we pray. We pray for the city of Portland. We pray, God, for the people in our sphere of influence that you will do the only thing you can do that we cannot do. We cannot do this. So, Father, we pray that you'll open their hearts and their minds to the truth of the gospel. Father, just like you did for us, show them that there is only one God and that he loves them so much that he gave his son to be the mediator, to take their punishment. Father, we pray that people will get that. We also pray, Father, boldly for us. We pray, God, that we will stand firm in the gospel. We pray that we will always remember that the gospel is for everyone. Regardless of their circumstance in life. Regardless of how similar or dissimilar they are to us or to Red Sea. And then, Father, as we pray for all people, I pray that you'll change our hearts and we will become more and more inclusive in our conversations, more and more inclusive in um, how we talk to people, that the gospel's for them. Father, we pray for our leaders. It's really easy to complain. Whether it's the president or the governor or our mayor or the senate, the legislature, you name it. We tend to want to complain more. Father, we pray for them. We pray too that you will open their eyes to the true gospel. One God, one mediator between God and man, and you need that mediator. We pray, Father, that you will help them to look favorably upon the church, so they will forget the times the church has, has been exclusive and, and they'll be, their minds will be changed and they'll allow a culture where we can share the gospel, we can share it to everyone, regardless of race or religion or culture, everyone. Father, we thank you for Jesus who sits in your presence on our behalf as our mediator. We thank you, God, that it's through him this morning that we can make these prayer requests. So, Lord, we just pray that you will continue your change in Red Sea, that we will become people who are kingdom-centered prayer warriors. Amen. I don't know how long you've been coming to Red Sea, but if you've been coming more than a week or two, you realize that 
one of the things we do every, every week is take communion and be reminded of, of our mediator. So I don't know what kind of week you have had. I don't know how you've been praying. I don't know whether or not you believe that there's one God and one mediator between God and man. I don't know if you think that you're beyond hope because you're not. Paul alludes in his letter that, look at me. God saved me and I was the worst. I do know this. I know that we have a mediator who died in our place and that mediator sits in the presence of God this morning. And for those of us who by faith believe in that one God and that one mediator, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. I took all of their sins, past, present, and future. I took it. I made peace between you and them. And he also says, my righteousness has been poured on them. Just poured on them. They are righteous beyond compare. So as we take communion, I want you to confidently come to God. Confidently come to the one who's our mediator. And thank him that he has that role and that God has his ear. Anytime you want to take communion, the tables are open. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.